we just spent uh, 20, 28 weeks, 29 weeks. That's right, it was one short of 30, so my OCD kicked in and said there's got to be one more so that we got 30. But we had 29 weeks going through the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And so that was a, a, a big chunk. But it was so great to be able to just really take a look at uh, what Jesus is doing there, which is this radical deconstruction of everything that we think we know so that we can get down to ground zero and really see who this father is, see what it is that we're interacting with and and what is the nature of this good news. All those things are not going to be visible, are not going to be apprehendable to us unless and until we have sold everything that we think we know and everything that we have so that we can just be and just be here. And for the last few weeks, I've been, um, I guess, you could say ranting, you could say uh, pounding on this idea that we are obsessed with accomplishment, we are obsessed with performance. That's, you know, that's the way that the world is, is wired, and so it's understandable. It's the way that we were raised, and so it's understandable. And unfortunately, it's also the way the church has taught us. The church has also reinforced this need for accomplishment this need to perform in order to be approved. And so for the last few weeks, we've been talking about what does it look like if we end this obsession that we have with accomplishment and with performance? If we stop the mindset that is telling us that we need to perform in order to be approved, in order to be loved, in order to get what it is that we want out of life, in order to be able to measure God's approval, God's pleasure, God's will in our lives. And the, and the main verse that we use, jumping off the sermon, to kick this last few weeks off, where I've been trying to get this point through, is uh, Matthew 7. So why don't we go there right now, Matthew 7, 21. I know John will get it up on the monitors, and it's in your handouts if you have those. This is where Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses from the end, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. And here we have to remember that the kingdom of heaven is not heaven of the afterlife. You know, for those of you who are joining us more recently, the kingdom of heaven to Jesus really means the reign of unity. It is the quality of life. It is the attitude toward life. It's the experience of life that we can have right here and right now when we are connected, when we are really present to God's presence and to everyone else's presence and making our choices and, and living our lives based on that presence. That's the kingdom of heaven. But he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Now, that sounds really rough. That sounds very much performance-related to me, if, and, and I don't know about you. But here are people who have been performing. Here are people who have been accomplishing things, great things, miracles, and all in God's name. And yet, at the end of all things, and on that day can be the day of their death. It can be the, the, the day everything ends. It is just the day that you come to realize, are, are my... Is my life really connected with God's? It's like the young man coming to Jesus and saying, what must I do for eternal life? 
It's that kind of day. And he's saying, just because you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't know that mean that I know you, that I knew you all this time. What this knowing means, yada in Hebrew, is intimate experience, intimate connection. It's not a mental thing. And so not knowing you means that not God, but we have never experienced God's radical, unearthly love apart from the earthly rules and processes that we're familiar with. So we have taken God's love and processed it through what we already know about accomplishment and performance and measurement of milestones toward goals and so on and so forth and processed it through that so that we have never known the radical nature of this love, how it operates completely differently from that. If we have only been approaching God through law, through obedience, through performance for approval, through measuring of results, then we don't know God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's not that God is keeping us out of the kingdom at that point. It's that we are not able to see that kingdom is all around us. As Jesus said, it's not going to be out there someplace. You're not going to see it by observation. It's not going to say, hey, look, here it comes. It's already within. It's among. It's in the midst of. And so it's a very different thing that Jesus is trying to get across. If we haven't experienced God in this way, with our defenses down, in all vulnerability and connection, then we have not yet learned that we can't impress God with our accomplishments and with the things that we do. We have not yet learned that we can't earn a place or a higher place with God. We've already got all of that, and we've had it since the beginning. Think about it this way. Each one of us is God's favorite. Did you know that? Every single one of us. God can have an infinite number of favorites, an infinite number <laughs> of ones that he, is, that he declares is most beloved, because there's no other position that makes any sense at all. There's no other position that exists in a love that is without degree. If you have a degreeless love, a love that can't be measured, then all measurement goes out the window. All accomplishment goes out the window. This is what we're trying to get across, what we're trying to approach here. I mean, if you think on that for just a second, think about this. Anything that can't be measured right? Always looks the same. Anything that has no degree always looks the same. The only way we can distinguish one thing from another is through comparison, by degrees, right? By this or by that. If there is no measurement, if it cannot be measured, how can you ever say that it looks different from anything else? Look at the sky. Without any clouds in it, it's just this ex infinite expanse. It always looks the same. If you're able to get out into space, the star field that you see always looks the same. Our top physicists now say that there will never be a place that you can get in the universe where that star field doesn't look exactly the same. The universe is finite, but it has no edge. If you go far enough in one direction, you won't finally get where the stars thin out and you're into blackness and looking back at the bubble of the... Nah. Anywhere you start, you're going to end up back where you started or like inside a huge black hole, the star field is always the same. 
It can't be measured. It always looks the same. God's love is like this. It is infinite. It stands outside of the space and time physics that has measurement, that has these edges that we can grab onto. And so God's love always looks the same. There is no degree to it. It is always perfect. And so we are always in the center of it wherever we are, whether we think we deserve it or not, whether we are performing to what specs we think we're supposed to perform to or that we think the scripture or the church has told us we're supposed to or not. God's love is like that. This is so unfair, (laughs) if you want to think about it, in the way that we process things, that it is so hard for us to get our minds wrapped around it. But what Jesus is saying here is that if you are still processing things, if you're still all about accomplishment, about degrees, then you still don't know God. And in the Hebraic way of, of expressing things, God doesn't know you, even though he does. We don't know God. We don't have that kind of connection. We can't enter into the connection because we're still just not there. We're still trying to earn our way in when we're already here. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. So put that way, does that mean that there's absolutely nothing for us to do then? Because we already got everything. I mean, literally, we do have everything that God has to offer, and we have had since the beginning of time and certainly the beginning of our lives since we took our first breath. But does that mean we have absolutely nothing to do? Absolutely not. Jesus' way, the way to the Father that he is telling us, is a doing of something. But here's the key. The doing of Jesus' way is of a different order because the doing of Jesus' way also has no degree. There is no degree to this kind of doing. The doing that we do along Jesus' way is having the experience of degreelessness, having the experience of this love, this perfect love, so that we can know what it is we're dealing with, so we can drop the misconceptions, and we can fearlessly, vulnerably enter into connection with God. This is what Jesus' way is about. And it's the only way, Jesus says, it is the only way to experience this connection with God. I think he says it beautifully in John 10. And John 10 is all about the good shepherd, right? If you remember. So right at verse 1, listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, He is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Skipping to verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Okay, so if you know a little bit about ancient sheepfolds, the peasant shepherds of Judea, what they would do is usually build it up against a hillside so one wall was already there. And sheep not being the brightest bulbs on the tree, you don't need a real high wall to keep them in. So they could just build up three other sides, you know, just to some height. And then there would be a gap in one side, and that would be the door. And they would drive the sheep in, and the sheep would stay there. At night, the shepherd would literally lie down and sleep in that gap, in the door. Literally, the shepherd was the door of the sheepfold. And they would respect that. 
And in the morning when he got up, then they all came out and then they would go into pasture and they'd do their sheep thing for the rest of the day, right? This is the image that everybody would have understood as Jesus is giving us this metaphor. He says, I am literally the door. Now here's the key. Anyone who jumps over the wall, comes in or out by any other way, is not going where we're going. You can only go by the door. There are no shortcuts, is what Jesus is telling us. There's no way to short-circuit what is going on here. We've got to do the hard work. You've got to do the hardest work that you will ever do, actually. But at the same time, it's work that can't be measured. In fact, this work is not going to feel like you're building something. It's not going to feel like you're increasing. It's going to feel like you're diminishing. It's going to feel like you're getting smaller and that you don't have anything to show for the work, right? Because you can't measure progress along Jesus' way in the usual way that we measure progress. Now, this has been called often taking on the mind of Christ. Taking on the mind of Christ. Taking on a different perspective. Putting on a different pair of glasses. Seeing the world in a completely different way. 180 degrees different so that we can actually see how this works. See the presence that's going on here. See the fact that the love is already here. But I remember someone talking about that. That's really blasphemous to think that you can take on the mind of Christ, that you can somehow become like Christ in the way that you think. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, that uh, he took that, that uh, stance, that it was an arrogance to think that we could somehow partner with God in order to get where Jesus is trying to get us. And I can understand why he would say that. Because if you're still thinking in terms of accomplishment, right? If you're thinking in terms of lifting yourself up, building yourself up to this image of God as king, as all-powerful, as all-knowing, as spectacular, as beautiful, and all the things that we think of God, then that seems to be arrogant that we could lift ourselves up, our imperfect selves, somehow to that sort of level. But here's the thing. Taking on the mind of Christ is really becoming one with servanthood. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what he showed us. It's taking on humility. It's taking on vulnerability. Even to the point of laying down your life for a friend. Washing the feet of your friends. Even though you are there technically their superior. It's not arrogant to take on servanthood. It's not arrogant to come down in humility. If we think that we must go up to meet God, we're still thinking through the measurable lines of of accomplishment because actually we go down to meet God. We go down from our egoic minds, imaginings of the grandeur of God because we've got it back to front. It's not blasphemous to partner with an unassuming God. A servant God, servant Christ. What did Jesus say? If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. It is a letting the air out of the tires that gets us to where we're really going. If we think we're going up, we're still thinking we're accomplishing, then we're still measuring each degree of ascent. And that's our basic problem. That's where we have to tweak our thinking and what Jesus is working so hard to do. Sometimes it's great to 
hear the same thing in another tradition because we get so used to scripture that it doesn't really speak to us anymore. We hear the words, but they have been repeated so many times in a different context or under a different interpretation that it's hard for us to break through. But something that really just hit me right in the face when I read it a couple decades ago comes out of the Chinese tradition about three or centuries or so before Christ. It's a Taoist tradition, and Chuang Tzu wrote what he called Autumn Floods, or the other title is Neither Great Nor Small. Now just listen for a second. It's this beautiful metaphor. It was the time of the autumn floods. Every stream poured into the river, which swelled in its turbid course. The banks receded so far from one another that it was impossible to tell a cow from a horse. Then the spirit of the river laughed for joy that all the beauty of the earth was gathered to himself. Down with the stream he journeyed east until he reached the ocean. There, looking eastward and seeing no limits to its waves, his countenance changed. And as he gazed over the expanse, he sighed and said to the spirit of the ocean, a vulgar proverb says that he who has heard but a part of the truth thinks no one equal to himself and such a one am I. But now that I have looked upon your inexhaustibility, alas for me, had I not reached your abode, I should have been forever a laughing stock to those of comprehensive enlightenment. To which the spirit of the ocean replied, you cannot speak of ocean to a well frog, the creature of a narrower sphere. You cannot speak of ice to a summer insect, the creature of a season. You cannot speak of Tao to a pedagogue, his scope is too restricted. But now that you have emerged from your narrow sphere and have seen the great ocean, you know your own insignificance, and I can speak to you of great principles. There is no body of water beneath the canopy of heaven which is greater than ocean. All streams pour into it without cease, yet it does not overflow. It is constantly being drained off, yet it is never empty. Spring and autumn bring no change. Floods and droughts are equally unknown. And that, thus it is immeasurably superior to mere rivers and brooks. Though I would not venture to boast on this account, for I get my shape from the universe, my vital power from the yin and the yang. In the universe I am but a small stone or a small tree on a vast mountain, and conscious thus of my own insignificance, what is there of which I can boast? Do you see what's going on here? All of these measurements that we take, all these comparisons we make, all of this accomplishment that we catalog and we're trying to lift ourselves up to a place that we can be significant enough means absolutely nothing. The comparison, the measuring is meaningless in the face of infinity, in the face of degreelessness, that which looks the same all the time. And it's also meaningless against the infiniteness of infiniteness of death. Remember Ecclesiastes that we talked about last week. At the end of his life, Solomon, with everything that he had amassed, the vastness of his holdings, realizes that in the face of death, everything is meaningless. It's a striving after the wind. But when we decide to go down, when we decide to start releasing, submitting, surrendering, and beginning to trust then we're moving into unmeasurable space. 
And when we do that, no one will see the work that you do. And this is a bummer for us because we want to be recognized. We want the brownie points. We want the pat on the back. We want people recognizing how hard we're working. But if you're looking for that, then you're still on the accomplishment scale. No one is going to see the work you do or congratulate you or reward you. Jesus said it's like the wind, right? You don't see it. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. All these images of Jesus are pointing to the same thing, trying to get us to understand. This work is only for you. We started the effect as a, as a recovery community, and one of the hallmarks and one of the bedrock principles of sobriety is that you don't do it for anybody other than yourself. If you're doing it for your spouse, if you're doing it for your children, if you're doing it for your church, anybody else, you will fail at sobriety. It has to be something that you want to do because the work that you do will be unseen. And if you are going to be disciplined to that work, if you're going to show up every day, it's only because it has become your greatest pleasure and deepest purpose to do so. And for no other reason. Because you want to relate and connect on a level that you've been missing out on. That is a sobriety that lasts. But if we're doing it for any other reason, for any other person, it is not going to take. It's not going to happen. And such is the way of Jesus. It's unseen, unmeasurable work that we do because it's become our deepest pleasure to do so. And where does this way of Jesus lead? Where does this door of the shepherd and all of this hard work take us? It's, uh, it's always interesting sometimes when things I'm thinking about and things that we've been talking about line up with other people's as well. And so Richard Rohr and, and we have been on this kind of beam lately, it seems like, in his daily meditations. And one that came out this last week, he calls it third eye seeing. And in terms of where Jesus' way is going to take us, if we're really going to let it do its job and empty us out and strip away all of the preconceptions, it's kind of like this. In your handouts, I put this little quote here from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I can't do the French, sorry. It's quite simple. One sees clearly only with the heart. Anything essential is invisible to the eye. Anything essential is invisible to the eyes. In the medieval period, two Christian philosophers offered names for three different ways of seeing, and these names have had great influence on scholars and seekers in the Western tradition. Hugh of St. Victor and Richard of St. Victor in the 12th century wrote that humanity was given three different sets of eyes, each building on the previous one. The first eye was the eye of the flesh, that is thought or sight. The second was the eye of reason, meditation or reflection. And the third eye was the intuitive eye of true understanding, contemplation. I describe this third eye as knowing something simply by being calmly present to it. Knowing something simply by being calmly present to it. No processing needed. In fact, if you are involving words, if you are naming the thing that you are doing, then you've stepped out of contemplation. You've stepped back into egoic processing. You've stepped back into accomplishment and measuring. And so the only antidote for that is to step outside of that. And as he says, knowing something simply by being calmly present. 
This image of the third eye thinking beyond our dualistic vision is also found in most Eastern religions. We are on to something archetypal here, I think. The loss of the third eye in our Western culture is the basis of much of the short-sightedness and religious crises of the Western world. Lacking such wisdom, it is hard for churches and governments and leaders to move beyond ego, the desire for control and public posturing. Everything divides into dualistic oppositions like liberal and conservative as Vesta's interests pull us against one another. Truth is no longer possible at this level of conversation. Even theology becomes a more quest for power than a search for God and mystery. We need all three sets of eyes to create a healthy culture and a healthy religion. Without them, we only deepen and perpetuate our problems. The third-eye person has always been the saint, the seer, the poet, the metaphysician, or the authentic mystic who grasps the whole picture. We need true mystics who see with all three sets of eyes. Some call this movement conversion. Some call it enlightenment, some transformation, and some holiness. It is Paul's third heaven where he heard things that must not and cannot be put into human language. And that's from 2 Corinthians. I think he said it perfectly there. That first set of eyes is physical sight, right? And egoic thought, that voice that talks to you in your head. That's the first set. Just dealing with things on the literal level, on the surface level. And if you're thinking Lexio Divina with me, then you understand the kind of, 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 of change between the sets of eyes that we're talking about. The second reason is egoic abstraction. That's still thought, but now it's abstract. It's, it's reflection. It can be meditation. Meditation as in thinking about something. So it's a step away from the literal, but it's still using the mind. And the third set, the intuition, the contemplation, is where we're literally out of our minds. <laughs> we have stepped outside just the boundaries of thought and words and processing at that sort of level. The mind is dualistic by nature. It has to break things into this or that. That comparison, that measurement is how we calculate. It's how we survive physically. We need that ability to have that dualistic thinking. But that's not going to get us where kingdom is trying to take us. It's by design and by necessity, but Jesus' door is taking us to a different dimension where everything is unity, unified, unitive, if you will, where everything is one thing. And if we can start to see that and overlay that on top of the dualistic, dualistic way that we need to process in order to just go and do our jobs and raise our families and do the things that we do in life, then the unity can infuse the dualism with meaning and purpose at the deepest level. And we will find that we're able to continue on without burnout. We're able to continue on and see the meaning even in the repetition and the things that by themselves become more and more meaningless the older we get. Jesus' way is this way of experiencing the degreelessness and the oneness of this perfect love. That's the experience of God. Intimate vulnerability. That's knowing God. And that changes everything. It changes the way we process. It changes our attitude 
toward everything that we do in life and any further accomplishments that we make. And there will be, I hope there will be. It's not that we're going to stop trying and accomplishment, stop striving for excellence, stop doing the things that we do in life. We need to keep doing those. But every accomplishment that we do is not going to be measured the way we used to be. It's going to be measured against this degreelessness. Sometimes the church calls that sanctification. As opposed to simple salvation, it's sanctification. It is coming closer to this unity. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's called theosis, which literally means divination. It means becoming like God, which again sounds blasphemous, but only because we're thinking in terms of accomplishment again. If we're coming down to the humility and the servanthood and the vulnerability of what Jesus is really showing us, it's not blasphemous at all. We are literally mirroring the unassuming God that Jesus is showing us. And this is why there's only one way to the Father. This is why they can't take the shortcut. You can't climb over the wall at any one point. You have to go through the door. Because until we are unified enough, we won't be able to see the unity all around us. And I know that sounds like a catch-22, but it's not. That's where faith steps in to take the risk before we've had the proof, but to have enough of the idea of what Jesus is leading us that takes the edge off the risk of taking a step in a vulnerably frightening direction. Unless we're unified enough, we won't be able to see the unity because if we're only processing through the dualistic mind, it can't compute. We can't do it. We literally can't. God isn't keeping us out. We can't allow ourselves to fall in. And this way of Jesus is the hardest thing that you'll ever do. To let go of the stranglehold of your mind, the security that you think that gives you, the control that is so important, to try to let that go, to step outside, to surrender that, that's hard work that no one will ever see. And though you can't see it, you will hear it and you will see the difference that it makes. People that have become converted to Christianity and come to the faith, years later, they often wonder, why has nothing changed? <laughs> you may be wondering the same thing about some of the people sitting next to you. you know? I mean, that's what we do, right? We say, why are they still so struggling? You know, why, why have, and you ask that about yourself. I'm still just as neurotic as I was before, you know. Relationships are still just as hard and such and so difficult, you know. I'm still feeling the stress, feeling the anxiety. I'm still feeling the depression. Why are things not changing even after I've given my heart and my life and my words to Jesus, to Christianity, after I've been saved, quote unquote? It seems like things just sometimes don't get better. There's a lot of reasons for this, of course, and we can go through them, and we have to make sure that we're not over-spiritualizing here because there are clinical reasons that people have problems. You know, there are social reasons. There are relational reasons. There are psychological reasons. All of these reasons can be things that need to be addressed in a clinical way or in a physical or psychological way, and that's, that's true enough. But a lot of this is also about things that just remain forever out of our reach, out of our control, things that we can't fix in our homes, in our lives, in our world. My gosh, 
the things that we read and the news stream every day are things that are outside of our control, but they affect us and they can depress us and they can stress us out, of course. But one of the things that I've come to be convinced of, and you can decide if you're convinced of this, is that God is not here to fix our problems. He's not here to change our circumstances. I believe that he's here to help us fix ourselves so that then we can turn and fix the problems that we can, as many as are possible, and to learn to be able to accept and live with the ones that we can't. Because our purpose here is not to fix or change circumstances or problems. That's a byproduct. That's an offshoot, but it's not the center of it. Our fulfillment and our contentment does not come from circumstances. It comes from within. Jesus tells us this over and over again. Our purpose here is to transcend the duality of our egoic minds and to experience and live the perfect love that Jesus says will bring us the abundant life. And what is abundant life? Well, the best way I can put it is abundant life that is not lived through the lens of fear anymore, that choices are not made out of fear, that defenses do not stay up because of fear, but that we can lay those down enough to be able to connect enough to be able to realize that our meaning and purpose comes from that connection, from that unity. Our society hasn't taught us this. Our society teaches us exactly the opposite, doesn't it? Stay defended. I mean, the people that we lionize are the fighters, the warriors, the one that just beat down the opposition rather than in any way find unity with it. But the bigger tragedy is that our church has not taught us this either. The church has mirrored our society. The church has mirrored empire and imperialistic ways of thinking. And the church has also not taught us that Jesus taught this way of descent, this way of laying down. Yet he did. There's hard work for us to do. The hard work of taking on this mind of Christ, letting go of all our obsession with accomplishment and performance to find those Ecclesiastes moments we were talking about, those moments of shattering epiphany where suddenly we break through and we see how these things that we have staked our life on and spent so much time on in and of themselves are meaningless until they are rooted in pure presence in real presence that can only come from that vulnerability and that connection. You know, hearing what I'm talking about, hearing about what other people have talked about, listening to so many voices, so many points of view, so many interpretations of the same scripture. You know, after a while, I remember the time that I got to, I was just like, I couldn't take in anymore. I was absolutely and completely paralyzed. You know, I didn't know which way to go anymore. Everybody was telling me something different. And I think we all get to that point at a certain place where if we're really trying to take in everything, trying to find our way through, we become paralyzed because there is so much contradiction. Which way do we go? <laughs> How do we find this? I read an article just this last week on decision-making. And it was kind of interesting. This woman is saying, 
how do you make a good decision when you've got all these alternatives and you don't know which way to go? What is, is there anything that we can use kind of as a guideline to be able to take us more unerringly to good decisions? And I thought it was interesting. Her, her point was, is that there are only two people that you need to impress. And she said, of all the people that, you know, one of the reasons we're paralyzed is we're trying to impress people, right? We want to see them, have them see us making good decisions, have them see us accomplishing and moving up the ladder and so on and so forth. She said, there's only two you really need to impress, your five-year-old self and your 85-year-old self. And I thought that was pretty good, you know? That's it. And she said, you know, it's, it's probably a good idea. And she actually printed one letter that she wrote from her five-year-old self to herself today, you know. And then she said she wrote letters from her 85-year-old self. And what's the idea here? The idea here is the five-year-old self is the, really the truest version of yourself before the ego has taken over, before you've learned to be hurt and that people are not going to be there for you and put in all the programs and all of the, the uh, defenses that we need to in order to even just survive childhood, right? And so the five-year-old self is the one that represents your real dreams and your true self. And to be true to that person as you have aged and found out the way the world works, but to not surrender those dreams is a pretty good grounding point, right? And the 85-year-old self represents living a life that doesn't have regret, that doesn't see missed opportunity, doesn't see not living to potential because of the fear of failure, all those things that we go about. And so those two people, the five-year-old self and the 85-year-old self, if you can impress them, you're doing pretty well. And that's not a bad way to look at it. But notice something here. The decisions that we will make based on those two people we're trying to impress still exist within our egoic bubble. It is still all just us talking to ourselves. And the decisions that we're making are still geared toward personal advancement, right? still working for accomplishment, working for things that can be measured. And we're measuring them, believe me. We're measuring them against where we are and where we want to go. But someone reminded me of a verse that I haven't read in years, just uh, Friday afternoon or Friday morning. It's Jeremiah 6:16, where the Lord says to his people, stand at the crossroads, and look. Ask for the ancient paths and where the best road is. Walk in it and you will live in peace. I love that. Stand at the crossroads. Is that what we're talking about? The thing is, every moment contains a decision, contains a choice. That's how you know you're in a moment because there's a choice. The choice is the moment. Every moment is a crossroads. It is a choice that we need to make. Is it this or is it that? It simply may be the choice, do I enter in? Am I present to this moment or am I going to stay inside my head and let it wander me all over the place? If it's a painful moment, am I going to be present to that even though everything in me wants to recoil? Every moment is a crossroads. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. And where the best road is, walk in it and you will find peace. Contrast that. As good as the 5 and 85-year-old is at helping us, contrast that 
with the former and latter selves to measuring alternative directions to looking at the ancient paths, the proven ways of our ancestors, of our elders, of our sages, of scripture itself. Now, I realize that this is not a completely apples-to-apples comparison because some decisions are really just personal, aren't they? Kind of arbitrary, more logistical. They don't carry a large, large weight. But here's the key, and I think Jeremiah is honing in on this, that any decision that is not made within the context of community for what is best for all that will be affected by your choice is a wrong decision even if it does no harm, right? If it doesn't take into account everyone, it's not being made along Jesus' way because Jesus' way is unitive. It is always in connection and never in isolation. If we don't make our decisions based in this way, with every and everyone and everything considered, we're not taking on the mind of Christ We're not really knowing God in that respect. And this is not to say the decision that you make, even following the mind of Christ, is not going to anger others because it's going to. It's not going to say that it won't hurt others because sometimes it will. It's not going to say that it doesn't create enemies. Jesus certainly created enemies, enemies, powerful ones that eventually killed him for his choices. But all that's in the short term. There are unintended consequences to everything that we choose, but we have no control over that. If we simply keep deciding and choosing at the crossroads for connection, for the experience of pure presence, stop naming things and just be present, Change will occur in us. We will be changed over time. It's not going to happen like a light switch. But every time that we choose at the crossroads for connection, we're taking another brick out of the wall of that separates us from this love, this good news, this radical difference of God's love. And as you do that, as you continue to choose for connection, you'll begin to know this radical good news. You begin to know the radical nature of God and God will begin to know quote unquote you back even though he already does. This is where Jesus is taking us. This is why it's so hard because it runs against the current of everything that we have used all our lives to protect ourselves. Are you willing to be unprotected? Are you willing to find out if you can survive being unprotected in the way that you have built up for yourself? This is a central question that Jesus is asking every one of us. Are you willing to sell everything that you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me along this road? That's it. But until we do, we will never know what it is that we're working so hard for. And we'll never know that it's already here. And the question is, how do we do that? Well, that's for next week. Ah, shameless teaser, right? <laughs> Let's pray. Oh, Father, oh, so much stuff. And yet it all boils down to one thing. That's the beauty of it. Thank you for making the simple 
visible within the complex. Help us to see that we only move through the complexity to get back to the simplicity. Help us to not get stuck and lost in the complexity, lost in all the measurement. Help us to see that we can move through and find that one thing on the other side that makes everything else sing. That's what we're looking for, Lord. And we know that we can do it because you told us that we can. You promised us we could. You know how frail we are. You know how fearful we are. Have patience with us, infinite patience, and help us everywhere along the way when we turn to you and ask for your presence and your assistance. We know that you're there. We trust that you will be there, even if we can't feel you at the moment. So thank you, Lord, again for that love and that constancy. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. All right, let's all stand.